I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the movie, movie lovers. lovers. Talking Welcome. about love. Hello. Welcome to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick it off with the Week in Review, talking about what movies and TV shows we've been talking about or seen since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or main review. And then finish up with Film Phase, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, since Valentine's Day is just around the corner, as Shanna was referring, we will be focusing for the first time, I think, in the podcast history on love stories. Now, we we won't be reviewing any new releases for a little while at least until the end of february we're just we're not really interested in anything that's coming out anytime soon so the next two episodes this episode and the next one will be kind of filling a little bit here so today as our main event we will be doing a discussion and review of Titanic in celebration of its 25th anniversary, which officially will be this December, uh, which is actually when the next Avatar movie is coming out, as a matter of fact. Oh, James Cameron gets to pick when he go- gets to go, huh? Well, I, I, I don't know. I know that that, you know, that movie's been delayed for almost a decade now, but uh, I just happened to notice that coincidentally... Avatar 2 is finally coming out on the 25th anniversary of Titanic. So maybe this year will be bookended, as far as our episodes are concerned, with uh, with James Cameron. So we'll be talking about Titanic in this episode, and our film faves will be our favorite love stories. So we'll be counting down our respective lists of our 12 favorites of those. After a brief week in review segment let's get into it Shanna you in the last episode had mentioned how you were kind of revisiting the first season of The Witcher on Netflix so you can watch the second season of The Witcher Uh, do you have an updated report there yeah so I rewatched the first season and that was a great idea because it's the kind of show that plays around with the timeline. So it's fun to go watch it a second time and know what they're up to. Mm. So that's lovely. And I really benefited from that because it was just easier to follow along with season two. And now I'm up to date, which is very exciting. And how is season two compared to season one? I really liked season one because it was this new world. And then in season two, we kind of had this opportunity to go more inward and explore three particular characters a little more, which at times I loved and at times I was a little, well, why is that character behaving that way? But at the end of the season, I really appreciated the direction that they went with the show and how character, certain characters were behaving in certain ways. Uh, it was very refreshing to see that being dealt with in that way. Basically, what's happening is we're dealing with a teenage girl's 
supernatural powers as well as I think hormones so things can be a little crazy and a little emotional at times and I just really loved how Geralt dealt with that in a very loving fatherly I accept you for who you are kind of way it was very refreshing and Geralt is Henry Cavill's character is that correct Geralt yeah the very sexy man. So go ahead and give yourself a Valentine's gift and go watch that show because that is something lovely to participate in. All right. Did you have any other thoughts or any improvements or what have you between season one or comparisons you wanted to make between season one and season two? I don't want to say too much. So I'm kind of just going to stop there because I think that's I'm coming at it from the perspective of I didn't play the game, didn't read the books, and I was pretty satisfied with it. And I'm very curious to know if, you know, people who played the game and read the books, if they're satisfied. So that is Witcher Season 2. Available on Netflix. All right. And you had nothing else to report for your Week in Review, correct? Nope. That's it. All right. So briefly for my Week in Review... I recently published, and I forgot to advertise this in the last episode, but I recently published my latest piece in the Disney Through the Years series. I finally finished the 2000s. I got kind of stalled, partially because of life, but also because I experienced some burnout when I attempted to do the live-action movies of the 90s. It, it It was pretty rough go at that point. And I just end up just stopping after a certain point. Uh, And so the live action uh, aspect of this series has pretty much ceased. It was just, it was too much. I couldn't get through it. I got through like two or three years worth of the 90s. And it was just, it broke me. I think it's a little funny that the 90s are what broke you. Yeah, well, it was a combination of the last few movies at the end of the 90s plus those those live action movies at the beginning of the nineties, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to power through the rest of the animated movies. But mm. then I, I, the next set was the two thousands, which was also really rough. So it took me a little while to get through the two thousands of uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios, um, but I I did it, and I published that. <laughs> so now I'm on. It's greener skies now, greener pastures. I mean, it's 2010s. Things are a little bit better. I'm working through those. I've I've been watching uh, Tangled, Winnie the Pooh, uh, Frozen. Well, I was gonna say Wreck It Ralph and then Frozen. Yeah. And so I'm gonna finish the rest of that. That and maybe even by the time you hear this episode, the next um, piece uh, on animated movies will be posted. The idea is hopefully. To finish this before the next episode posts, more on that a little bit later. So I've been working through those. It's been very interesting. I'm so glad to be done with the 2000s. That is arguably the worst decade in Disney's history. It's certainly one of them. The 70s and 80s weren't great either, but you can read all of that by going to thegibsonreview.com. But Shannon, I remembered we had two things to talk about for our Week in Review, one of which we completely forgot to talk about in the last episode, which we should have, and that is Hawkeye on Disney+. Mm. Ah, yes, the forgotten Hawkeye. 
All right, so, you know, by this time, like, I know Hawkeye is kind of old hat and everything. People are like, oh, yeah, that show. Because attention spans and the way things go, it's so fast. It's like uh, something you only talk about in a week's period of time or whatever. But we have talked about every other, every, everything else MCU. We should talk about this. Shannon, what were your thoughts on Hawkeye first going into it? Any expectations you might have had? And uh, what did you think of the series when all was said and done? Hawkeye is not my favorite character by any stretch, and I therefore didn't put any expectations on it, but I figured I figured maybe we're going to touch on the stress of losing, you know, how he lost Black Widow and how that's affecting his everyday life. And now he's, you know, he doesn't need to be part of the Avengers, so he's going to be his, what he wants to be. His fa- He's going to be with his family, hopefully. Mm. So... That's what I was hoping for him, but obviously we're not going to have a show that just focuses on family time with Hawkeye. <laughs> so Hawkeye, family man. Yeah. <laughs> six, six hours. And it's like the, it's like he should have gotten what one division got, you know, where it's all just family time, sitcom stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, that would have made me happy. Anyway, so what we do deal with with Hawkeye is, is fine and dandy. And then we get the introduction of the new character whose name escapes me. Which, which new character? The female character. There's two new female characters in this series, Hawkeye. There's Kate Bishop and there's uh, Maya. Yeah, so Kate Bishop. Yeah, she's fine. And then we get to see other things. And, you know, there's background stuff happening with Hawkeye. Mm. And I quite enjoyed that. And it is somewhat linked to Spider-Man never coming home thing. No way home. That one. Uh, Sort of. Sort of. In a very small way, it is. If I'm thinking of the right thing, which was in the final episode of the of the series. Well, there's two things. Now I don't remember. <laughs> See, this is what happens if we don't talk about it straight away. Of course. So I just, my expectations were this was going to be a transitional thing to getting Kate Bishop introduced, taking over the mantle of Hawkeye, and then and 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 Clinton Barton officially retiring, as it seemed very clear he needed to do. Right, like he has a family that was a huge a part of his emotional arc in Infinity War and Endgame, uh, particularly Endgame, I guess. And so I figured it was really going to help retire uh, the mantle for Clinton Barton and move on with this new character, Kate Bishop. Very exciting. It it doesn't exactly do that actually, which is a little surprising, and I'm, I'm mildly concerned about that. I want to, you know, it it doesn't. It kind of like just ends with essentially Clinton Barton accepting taking Kate Bishop under his wing. The most of the series is them being kind of thrown together or together begrudgingly. Or one helping the other out in some perilous shit that goes down. We do get introduction of a new character. This thing is definitely going to branch off in in one or two different directions that we don't know when they will be paid off in the future. We do know that if you've if you haven't seen Black Widow, you should see Black Widow the movie before you see Hawkeye. Because this definitely ties, you know, that movie ties into this show. 
And I, I thought it was actually the honestly when it gets down, down to it, I thought it was the it was probably the most fun of all the 2021 more MCU TV shows. It was probably the most fun. I had a blast with Hawkeye, and I thought it was overall pretty satisfying. And there's some pretty big surprises too that I won't spoil here. I'll let the internet do that for you. Mm-hmm. It probably has already. Yeah. So I, I look forward to seeing where those things and where, all the different elements that are introduced in this series. I'm looking forward to seeing where they pay off at because I'm not really sure where they're going to pay off at. I'm looking at the roadmap ahead. But uh, I'm excited. And this was definitely one of the better series. I probably would say Falcon and the Winter Soldier is the weakest of the four shows from 21. I have started rewatching Loki just because I feel like it's the kind of show that sets up the next big picture thing yeah so i feel like it deserves another watch i i think wandavision is my favorite and then hawkeye then loki and then winter soldier but i don't feel like winter soldier is like a bad one loki was the biggest surprise for me because i went into that really like not wanting it to exist and it ended up being not only fun but also the most significant of all of them in ways that we still haven't seen paid off. So anyway, so we cut, we caught up with Hawkeye. Those are our thoughts. We're very positive on the series overall. We also have been watching on Disney plus the book of Boba Fett. Oh, are we going to talk about that? Yes, we oh. should talk about that. Cause we are four episodes in at the yep. time of recording, something yep. like that. What are your thoughts on the book of Boba Fett? Did you have any expectations on that going in? And how has it played for you? Feels like I'm just having the same conversation as I did about Hawkeye. Boba Fett's not my favorite character. He's always been like this bad guy for me. And I've never really had a lot of interest in him. But I've also never really been very hurt by him. Because Han Solo's not my favorite character either. And we all know what happens there. So I didn't have any expectations. That's a lie. I was hoping that we would get beautiful scenery like we did with The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian just felt like we were being dipped in this really great world Mm. and that we were seeing so many different things and different, you know, not only different planets and landscapes, but it was cool to see the different creatures that exist and how different, different beings live within this galaxy. I really love that. Mm. And then we have Mandalorian with Baby Yoda, and that's entertaining, you Mm. know? But with Boba Fett, you know, we've been watching Arrowverse, and Arrow likes to do flashbacks. Right, yeah. Uh, That's what we've been exposed to this whole time we've been watching Arrow. We're in season five. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a long five seasons. Yeah. And... I'm so done with that trope of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm a time fan. I usually love back in the day type stuff, you know, that gives us insight into why the character is the way they are right now. Mm. But I saw that and I was like, oh dear God, no. Mm. Now, they dealt with it a little bit differently with Boba Fett. They're like, okay, we're gonna, when we go back in time, we stay back in time. 
And yeah. it doesn't go back and forth, back and forth. So I at least appreciate it for that. It might have done a little bit of that in the first episode, but yes, right. but I think the, the other episodes, they kind of stayed, you know. So we will see what happens. I am not very attached to the show mm. at this point. What about you? Because you're a fan of Boba Fett. Well, uh, yes and no. Boba Fett, uh, you know, my, my entire life, he was that cool character, mostly from, well, he, he was in Empire Strikes Back too, but also from uh, Return of the Jedi, he had cool design, he was this badass bounty hunter, he had a reputation, he lived on in video games, all this sort of stuff, and I, I, I've never read the novels that at one point were canon, I don't know what what the actual story was but i do know that people assumed oh yeah someone that badass that he'd somehow definitely escaped the sarlacc or whatever that was kind of the extent of it for me but i never really was like when i heard rumors of a boba fett movie oh almost 10 years ago i was not like excited about that you know i unless it was like set before Return of the Jedi and Empire and kind of telling his adventures or whatever as a bounty hunter. Hmm. You know, kind of building up the lore of the character. No, I guess they they cast someone else. They cast the Mandalorian for that. (laughs) Yeah, essentially. So I wasn't really... Because I'm not really keen on let's run every original trilogy character into the ground kind of thing. And that... That seems to be, and, and you know, not stepping away from the Skywalker saga, that seems to be the direction Kathleen Kennedy's going. So I was not thrilled with the first two episodes of the show, especially. It felt like nostalgia porn. It felt like all it was doing was just being like, hey, remember this thing? Here's more of that thing. And not really doing much to build in on top of the universe of Star Wars and do anything really new or interesting. Now, I I liked, you know, I was going to give it four episodes and decide whether or not I'm going to quit. Episode four kind of got me where I'm like, okay, I'll stick with it a little bit longer. It, it knew about your, your uh, principle in watching shows, and it was like, we're going to see if we can change this yeah. up for Jeff Gibson. Yeah, we got to step it up. <laughs> Part of it is because they do finish the, seem to finish the flashbacks. In episode four, which is great. Um, I, I, w- I was with you with that. I've, I was kind of like, oh, God, I don't really want to go back and forth and really, like, draw out what happened with Boba Fett after the Sarlacc. That would be annoying, too. I think I'm maybe with it a little bit more than you are. W- would you be happy not watching the rest of the series? Well, no, because episode four ended in a very particular way, and I'm like, and you didn't get it at first and I was like no they're gonna do this 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 because of how they ended it and I'm interested because of that Hmm. I I like seeing the actor that plays Boba Fett I don't have a problem with the actor all of a sudden Boba Fett takes his helmet off like all the time in the movies you never saw him take off his helmet and now he's like hold on let me pop this thing off so I can have a conversation you know, and even Tamara Morris and the guy who plays Boba uh, has actually publicly said the guy talks way too much, more than he should. I I really like that 
the actor is speaking out about his character because I think that puts him in the good graces of Star Wars, hardcore Star Wars fans. Mm. You know, it basically tells us, hey, behind the scenes, they're controlling me. I know how I right. know how Boba Fett is supposed to be, but this is what's happening. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure you know, on that point. I'm not entirely sure I'm happy with the direction this character is going because he does seem to be quite different from the Boba Fett yeah. that like the fans loved. Yeah. You know, when we rewatched episode three because of our son... I appreciated that opportunity because it it gave me pause. I was like, wait a second. Boba Fett is supposed to be extremely bad and no nonsense and from mm. what I understood. And I found myself being very conf- conflicted yeah. with how they were doing the story. But anyway, I, I am going to watch the rest of the show and see what I feel afterwards. How about you? Yeah, same thing. Uh, and we'll probably maybe have finished it by the time the next episode is recorded. So we'll give an update on our final thoughts on the book of Boba Fett. But it is certainly no Mandalorian, a show that 90% of which actually was doing something new and different with the Star Wars and, galaxy. And beautiful. I'm not seeing a lot of beautiful shots in this show. Yeah. All right, so that that is our weekend review and finishes up the weekend review segment. And now it's time for the main event and our 25th anniversary review of James Cameron's Titanic. Get ready to be thrown back to the 90s with this trailer and the song in particular. Seeing you coming out of the darkness like a ghost ship. Still gets me every time. Take a look at this drawing that we found just today. A piece of paper that's been underwater for 85 years. I'll be damned. All right, you have my attention. Can you tell us who the woman in the picture is? Oh, yes. The woman in the picture is me. Louis XVI wore a stone called the Blue Diamond of the Crown. And today it would be worth more than the Hope Diamond. If your grandmother's who she says she is, she was wearing the diamond the night the ship sank. You really think she was there? Oh, yeah. I'm a believer. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? in history, you act as if you're going to your execution. I'll forget it, Boyle. You'll never get next to the likes of her. That was from the trailer. Welcome to the 90s. <laughs> to James Cameron's Titanic. 
Okay, so what I want to do first is we're talking about a movie that is 25 years old. We were both alive when this movie was released, and both of us saw this film in theaters. And at very different ages. At very yes, very different ages. That's for sure. And <laughs> you, I'm so glad you pointed that out to me <laughs> the other the last night. But uh, I want to talk about what was our first experiences first originally with Titanic in terms of like it as a movie and a possibly even a cultural experience, cultural phenomenon. Yeah, so I think it's important to note that I was only about 10 when it came out. And what does that mean? Does that mean fourth grade? Oh, that would be somewhere around fourth or fifth grade. Okay, so kind of height of hormones and stuff. My first interpretation of the film was this is so long and this is so traumatic and you know, bad things are happening to people and oh my God, it happened in real life. I don't know how exposed I was to movies that were based on actual events or mm. inspired, inspired by actual events. I, I don't remember. Yeah. It did create a curiosity for me in history. So whereas before I was not interested. Mm. So it, it had good benefits, you know, for a 10 year old, but it, you know, it was also like, girl who's found her hormones and there's this epic love scene that everybody references and talks about so there was a, a bit of confusion there but like culturally well what i remember is just how it was in the theaters forever mm. and like it felt like it never left and at times there would be anniversaries like Year anniversary, we're going to have Titanic again. Five-year anniversary, we're going to show Titanic again. And so I remember growing up with it around all the time. Hmm. You know, we spoke about this last night, but it was still VHS time. So when it eventually came out on DVD, I remember the local store, just the whole one side of the wall was covered in Titanic VHS because they knew how popular it was and how fast it was going to sell out. So it was constantly there. And I know that, you know, maybe a, it must have been like two years later. So a year after it came on VHS, our teacher wanted to do a let's learn about the Titanic and now let's watch the movie about the Titanic, which I think is a horrible decision showing a bunch of crazy hormone-driven fifth graders, that movie. It definitely was very popular. It was referenced all the time, even as, you know, a 10 to 12-year-old girl. It was definitely, it definitely inserted itself in the culture and stayed there for a very long time. You know, I, I just looked it up because I was curious. You, you talked about it being in theater for a really long time. Mm -hmm. This thing was in the top 10 in the box office, domestically, in the United States, uh. until its 27th week. Oh, my God. That's a really long time. It was in the top 20 until its 37th week so in it theaters. It was in theaters for a total of 41 weeks. It ran from December of 1997 until September, mid-December, by the way, until September, late September 
1998. That does not happen anymore. No, I mean, I mean, especially now post COVID. You know, well, it it hasn't happened. I don't think it's happened since. That's the kind of thing that happened like regularly in the 80s and mm. before when when movies would have longer runs, you know? There there were also a lot less movies that came out. But even in the 90s, that is a very long run does not happen. Well, and I remember if there was a new cinema that would open cuz our city was having I I guess an economic boom where different things were opening. And if a cinema opened, they would show Titanic because they knew it was going to get people in. And this was, you know, maybe the two-year anniversary. And I think this particular theater that I'm remembering, they had like a plaque on the wall that Titanic had so many, you know, so many people came and watched it and it was a certain number and I wish I could remember what it was but that theater you know just I think it got torn down in the last two years so there's no way I can find out but I just thought that that was so fascinating that they had a plaque you know in the reception area that's crazy so comparatively I just looked it up let's say Avengers Endgame right yeah that's a good example for us I, I, I you know I could look at Avatar also but Let's say Avengers Endgame. That ran for only 20 weeks. Okay? Yeah. And that was that ended up earning 2.7 billion dollars. Okay? Did you mention how much Titanic earned? I I should. Actually, let me take a look at that. Titanic ended up earning worldwide 1.8 billion dollars. I mean, that's a lot for back then. Uh, yes, yes, that is, I think, just the original release domestically. And you mentioned future releases. There was a 10th anniversary release, and then there was a couple others mm. after that. I think they did a 3D uh, release attempt at one point. Oh, dear God. Okay. So, at any rate. Uh, so, yes, because I need to see frozen bobbing bodies in 3D. That's that tells you, But that <laughs> tells you how long a phenomenon it was. It was almost a year-long yeah phenomenon well and here's what's interesting it's like a film about something tragic you know it's a three hour 20 minute film about sure there's some some romance in it but it's about a ship that went down and thousands what 1500 people died Mm. you know so it's i think it's fascinating that it's not it's exempt it's not part of a franchise it's this one-time deal and this is how well it did yeah and you know avatar did dethrone titanic famously right in 2009 well good for james cameron as the biggest earner (laughs) of all time right but it took only till the 15th week week in its release for it to come out of fall out of the top 10 Mm. so it didn't perform as long in that sense and then only for the 22nd week, for it to fall out of the top 20, it ran for 34 weeks in total uh, compared to Titanic's 41 weeks. So Titanic even ran for almost 10 weeks longer than Avatar did, and Avatar grossed 
you know, outgrossed it. Well, when you asked which movie are we, you know, you gave me a choice between this movie and Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann one. And I said, well, I guess we should do Titanic because I hadn't seen it since I was, you know, in prebubescent phase of my life. And at first I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if we should do this. Wait, 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 wait. To clarify, you haven't seen it since you were 10? Like 10, 12, yeah. This is your first time since then? Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. It's a three-hour, 20-minute movie. I don't need to see it every year. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) three hours, seven minutes. But yes, yes, I I totally get you. Okay, so let's move on from the initial experience of seeing it. Over time, especially for you, since you hadn't seen it since you were around 10, what... Was what are your thoughts? What were your thoughts of Titanic over time? Uh, what was your impression of the film and your memory of it? Whatever it was mm. uh, before watching it recently, I think I remembered very little about it. I remembered how tragic it was. I remember being terrified that I don't want to have a romance like that because that's just absolutely depressing and tragic and awful. Uh, it turns out that I can I, I get a very visceral reaction when romance is doomed, mm. <laughs> you know, to not live on <laughs> into happy old age. I like get uh, I get a tingling. I get a certain sense of like a certain scent hits my nose. It's very weird. I okay. think it's like past life experience intruding on present day (laughs) you know or something it's something inexplainable it's like you should not be having such a bodily reaction to this kind of thing right moving on um (laughs) i i remember not wanting to sit through a you know a three-hour film again i remember that leonardo dicaprio was too sexy for his own good i remember (laughs) (laughs) What else? Do I, and I remember it, it just being very, very sad and not wanting to, not feeling like it was going to be worth going through again. Mm. But, you know, at the time I didn't, I probably paid attention to it subconsciously, but I didn't pay consciously attention to the camera work, the choice right. of palette. The I knew that what they had done was very intricate because... At the time, when we would watch normal television, normal channels on the TV, we would see behind the scenes. They would have little specials, 45-minute specials, to further promote the film. I mean, they would promote hard. For films that had behind-the-scenes making ofs, they would push that stuff out in South Africa. And I just, I loved that element of it. So I knew how hard they had worked on the film. I understood there was uh, an extreme craftsmanship to the film. And so I understood and appreciated that at least. Okay. So for myself, it was a huge cultural phenomenon. And it, and, and it was one that like people were all about and then that somehow at some point turned <laughs> and i think part of it was the theme song didn't help right uh, uh celine dion's my heart will go on was in on the radio like all the time yeah. and it was the music video was on vh1 <laughs> like all the time yeah. and it got so oversaturated and so overplayed 
mm-hmm. and, and just the iconography also of being at the the, the stern or the front of the the ship and everything yeah um it it's got so, so overdone stuck in my head right now that <laughs> it, it became like it's always like too soon to hear the song yes my heart will go on you know yes it just got overdone. Now, I, I will say one thing I didn't mention before is I actually had I actually bought at the time the score to Titanic by James Horner. Love the score, very great score. So stirring, so moving. Yes, great score. But so in, in terms of impressions of the film, it was always a film that I respected, and I always remembered specific or or uh, especially the hour plus of the sinking of the ship and to me that was that was the movie that was the movie experience seeing it on the big screen which it was the first movie i saw in there just twice seeing that on the big oh, screen yeah. was you know on a 30 foot screen seeing a ship go bow up or sorry you know the the i think the stern up dude you had boat experience i know with your family I what know. the hell i'm totally brain farting here <laughs> um so the stern is the back Having that go pointing up mm. tens of feet in the air, up upwards of a hundred feet in the air, with all these people hanging on and stuff, that this is also pre nine eleven, so we never actually seen anything like that in real life, mm. and this was like as close as you could possibly get to actually being there when the Titanic sank. So that always stuck with me. That's what I remembered most, but of course. Of course, culturally, everybody remembers the love story and kind of like thinks of it as this, as you mentioned, big, kind of overdone, overwrought maybe, melodramatic love story, you know, broad strokes kind of thing. And people like, uh, it, it, it turns people off eventually. But, well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, those, the, the, the tragedy, the big things is what I remember most from it and the song of course that because that was so ubiquitous that you couldn't oh, leave it from your consciousness imagine 10 year old 11 year old girls trying to express themselves and get that hormonal energy out in a societal acceptable turn way and the way that we did that was by blasting music and my heart will go on was my friend's favorite song at the time and mm. She would just play it over and over and over and over again. Mm. So, yes, that song was very popular in South Africa as well. You couldn't escape it. And a lot of people sustained their love of that song for a very long, unnaturally long time. Mm. (laughs) And it makes me wonder, like we spoke about how I I wonder what it's like for someone who did not grow up with that Like when they hear the song, are they like, "Oh, it's it's lovely. It's a lovely song," and yeah. you know they don't have yeah <laughs> they don't have PTSD of it being overdone. Yeah, they definitely benefit because now they're able to appreciate it as it is yeah. as uh, as a, a power ballad. Because let's but, be real, it's it's good when yeah. you don't hear it all the time. Right. Ob- objectively speaking, it's not a terrible song, but at any rate. We, we got to move on. Was there any other memories or any other impressions that you want to share that you had of the film before watching it for the first time in over 20 years? Oh, there's lots of memories, but we don't need to get into it. Let's move on. Okay, so watching the film, here's what I'm curious about. 
What didn't you remember about the film that you experienced while watching it now? So much. I forgot that this film basically starts as like a mini National Geographic Mm. adventure underwater. Like, yay, we finally have technology to go to the, the, the depths of, I don't know, what did they say, like 33 tons of water above them? Like they get to do remember. this, they get to do this fun adventure. It's basically a treasure hunt, 20 minutes of a treasure hunt movie because they're trying, I forgot, they're trying to find the blue heart diamond, of the, ocean. the heart of the ocean. Yeah. And I forgot where that ended up. Uh-huh. I forgot that basically Rose is older and she's telling the story to all these pirates, <laughs> these <laughs> explorers. Yeah. So... <laughs> I forgot about that, and I forgot that Rose is in this very pressured, our family needs money, you need to marry this steel owner. Past Rose, past uh, Rose, you're talking about. When she's telling past, the yeah. yes. Yeah, you need to marry this steel mogul. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and get our family out of the debt, or get the, mm-hmm. get, sustain our riches you know mm-hmm. so being pressured into that and then realizing that she doesn't she doesn't have to do that and then seeing leonardo dicaprio uh jack who he is and how he just really tries to live life as best he can and make things work and mm-hmm. it would be nice if we were all living that well just because you're living well to do doesn't mean you're living well mm. and i remember kathy bates's character because i really liked her and i figured well she's she was one of the only americans on the boat mm. and i remember thinking well i want to be like her i want to see more americans like her because she was very her character was very no nonsense confident willing to help out someone who needed help to fit into that society a little more grounded and, let's say yeah. and not so snobby because yeah. she's quote-unquote new money yes you know <laughs> yeah and then you know at the end she's the one that's like we need to help those people because she's on well, one of the boats. on the lifeboats yes yeah. yeah much later but yeah rather than hopping around what else did you not remember about the film as you experienced it or or what else surprised you while watching it I was surprised by the cast because now I know those people. Oh, you know? yeah? Really? So the guy from, speaking of Aravis, the guy from Legends, who was the... Oh, Victor Garber. Yes. Yeah. So we get to see Victor Garber, who looks like a baby. <laughs> I mean, he's still at least 40-something, but yeah. <laughs> he looked gorgeous. And so that was that was pretty fun. And, you know, enjoying Kathy Bates again and... So I appreciated the cost, and this time around, I appreciated the cinematography and the scale, and there's a couple shots that don't hold up well, but mostly everything holds up pretty decently, and maybe maybe even a decade from now, it'll still be okay, and the reason why it's still okay is because it's James fucking Cameron doing what he does best, and... I love the lighting. They did some really fun things with the lighting uh, mm. and color color symbolism, and that was really great. So I really appreciated that. It wasn't in our face, but it was just a little pop here and there because yeah. most of the time it's a fairly neutral palette. It's fairly creams, mm. browns, right. really focusing on like ship colors. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that was very interesting. So you mentioned... 
how well things held up. And what I want to point out is the budget of the film at the time, and it was it was at the head headline top of headlines for in the in Hollywood news, movie news at the time because it would be running long, production would run long, it would be going over budget. But budget was two hundred million dollars, which even by today's standards, that's insane. Okay, I don't know what two hundred million dollars in nineteen ninety seven dollars equates to today, but mm. I'm sure it's no studio would do that today. But um, <laughs> you know. It, you see it on the screen. You see $200 million in, in visual effects. Uh, James Cameron spared no expense in making sure <laughs> things looked good and would hold up. And, you know, that's that's typical of his whole career, really. In terms of, like, what I didn't remember, I, I'm with you. I didn't remember that we spend 20 minutes of the movie. You have You have some numbers for me? Okay, so I have some numbers for you. I did go ahead and get the... Inflation? That's the one, the inflation calculator. And if you put $200 million in there, it, you, you can't just type it in Google. You have to go to their actual site because I think it's too many numbers for it. It's too many numbers for me. I got it incorrect twice. It is $347 billion. Million. Million. For fuck's sake. $347 million. Point being, that's insane and it just was not would not happen today. So I think you see that on the screen, and that's why I think pretty much every shot holds up 25 years later. And at the time, I remember thinking, it, I mean, it felt like a real ship. And there is a combination of practical and CGI, but the CGI felt like a real ship at the time. Anyway, I'm with you. I didn't remember that the that first 20 minutes of the movie is yeah. spent with Bill Paxton and his crew and getting Gloria Stewart, who plays old Rose, hundred year old Rose to the ship. And she starts telling the story. It's a great framing device. Yeah. James Cameron does pretty well with the, uh, injecting a little bit of humor here and there in it. And Gloria Stewart herself, who is an old retired actress, at that point of course she's since passed away uh she is superb in it she is superb very uh charismatic what else didn't i remember about the movie going into it there's a lot of small things uh details here and there that i didn't remember interestingly watching it now the, po- the parts of the film that you expect to move you emotionally, move me emotionally, didn't. It was other parts of the movie that moved me emotionally. Like the first five minutes when we, when we do finally go back in time. After the first 20 minutes. When it cuts to... Well, not, it doesn't mean cut. It transitions to the, the docks... Mm. And you have the score and everything. Oh, yeah. All of that, like there is a majesty to it. And there is so much detail of extras and all these sorts of things that I found myself like on the verge of being like overwhelmed by (laughs) all of it at, at times. Things like that is when I actually really started to get moved. And and other things along uh, along those lines. 
Let's talk about the the movie. What what worked for us about the film? Uh, watching it this time, I, I want to point out first a few things. The thing that really struck me was how the excellent transitions. Uh, the transitions in this film is really something like it'll transition from, let's say it's a shot under the sea looking at the uh, door frames or whatever that'll be underwater. And it'll just transition that to when the doors were nice and shiny and mm. maybe gold trimmed or whatever, you know. There's a lot of transition. There's a transition of Rose's eye from young uh, Rose to old uh, Rose when you start to see the wrinkles around the eye appear. There's a lot of stuff like that transitioning mostly between the two time periods that's really cool and really effective. That's a really great observation. I I thought that was pretty good too. I agree. I feel like... The way the movie contrasts between rich and poor, and this this is especially true after the iceberg hit, or after the the ship hits the iceberg, you start to see more of these these contrasts. But even during the first hour before, you see like, okay, here's what the rich people are doing, and then I'll cut to what the what is called the steerage, what the poor people are doing. Mm. And it is is very effective contrast because you get something that's very quiet. One might even say staid or boring. Yeah. And then you get like raucous, like, you know, <laughs> people exciting. dancing. Yes. You know, yeah. um, playing music, all this sort of stuff. You like know? you should be having a good time on the ship. Yeah. Well, it is different, definitely different ways that people had, you know, this very mannered way of being. Ugh. And then, you know, a very I would say stodgy. There's a very stodgy way of being and a very alive way of being. Yeah. Which also seems to be a contrast. And so those were very effective. And it gets more effective as you go on when they're trying to prepare the passengers on the ship after the iceberg hits the ship and, and getting them prepared for uh, getting off the ship. You have what's going on with the rich people and then like you have what's going on with the poor people who it's it's a, it, there's definitely contrasting situations there it's like oh hey you know get up you might want to put on your vest in, in in terms of the rich ones and then like in the poorer it's like they're swinging open the the doors and saying, get up everyone get up and they're tossing the vests at the people mm. and stuff those kinds of details were very interesting. And then, honestly, I think the power of the film really comes in the ancillary characters and the the calling back to certain ancillary characters. I wish it had done a little bit more setting up of some, certain ancillary characters that you see during the sinking of the ship. Uh, like one in particular... I'm not sure, but I didn't. I don't remember seeing the the preacher in the church scene mm. that you eventually see during the sinking of the ship. Mm. That was a very powerful moment. I, I, you know, it's such a long movie that when I was younger, I couldn't pick up on all the little things that were happening, mm -hmm. and that was a really wonderful moment. Seeing it now, yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Like, I, people would have needed that, you know? Well, yeah, and they're, like, all hanging on to each other. I mean, there's a lot of really powerful moments. Uh, and, it, you know, you have the famous, famously, you have the old couple who just lay in bed oh, together as the water make me cry. pools around them. You have, I can't remember her name. Maybe you can look her up real quick via one of the other movies. But there is an actress who has played in a couple of James Cameron's movies, aliens in particular. She is uh, most notable for as playing Ramirez in aliens. Uh, She shows up in, in Titanic as an ancillary character in the steerage who has two kids with her. And the calls, calls back uh, Jeanette Goldstein is her name I forgot about that she gets called back a couple times the, the camera cuts cuts to, to them and that's really powerful little details like what's happening most especially with the poor people mm. during the sinking of the ship well and something really powerful. that I never picked up on ever and I was only able to pick it up now was there's a family of four who do not speak English. Right. And they're trying to find their way out of there. Right. And it's, you, you I don't know. It's a know very what brief shot. It's very yeah, brief I shot. I don't know what they're actually saying, but, or what they're actually going through, but they're trying to get out and they're panicking because they can't figure out, you know, what the sign What the sign says. Because yes. I think, I think their written language is completely different as well. Yeah. So I got the impression that they were more Middle East. Yeah. So I was like, Oh my God, never mind the people that actually know what's happening to them, the people that have no idea and can't do anything. It's very frightening. Yes. So I always thought that the love story between Jack and Rose is a means to an end. It's a means to get us completely familiar with the ship and its geography Yeah. for the sinking because... If you actually pay attention during that hour of that romance, they're going all over that ship, getting us very familiar with the geography of this ship. So you more or less have an understanding of where you're at in relation to other things during the other 90 minutes that the the ship is uh, sinking. And I go back and forth with Rose. You know, she has this very privileged white woman who is going to get married into money. Oh, boo-hoo. But at the end of the day, that's a person that doesn't want the life she's been forced into. Mm-hmm. And second of all, she's not a whiny bitch. Like, she is having a tour around the boat with the architect of the boat and uh, the, the engineer of the boat and the captain, I think, as well. It's a bunch of very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're obviously getting the VIP tour. Yeah. And she is doing the math in her head, and she's like, you don't have enough boats, do you? And Lifeboats. Ar- yeah, lifeboats. Yes. And the architect talks about how, well, it was going to look rather cramped and not very stylistically appealing. Well, um, uh, it, I'll, I'll, I'll correct you. He said that, like, he had designed there to be a certain number of lifeboats on the ship. But the company... Oh, it was the company. Who... uh, The company pushed back, and they wanted it to look neater. Oh, I see. Okay. And so they only had half as many lifeboats as they should have. 
Well, and I like that, you know, she's not just a pretty face. She was paying attention to everything that was going on and doing the math and figuring it out. And so when there was the moment there was an issue, she knew there were so many people that were going to die. She knew that they weren't prepared. So, so I appreciate Rose and I, you know, I was kind of just piggybacking off of they, they even got a tour, a VIP tour. And so we really did get to see a lot of the ship through that story. Yes. However, I, I'm going to stick with Rose a little because it'll segue yeah. into a bigger question. But the only false thing I feel like Jack ever says, the only thing that felt false to me that Jack ever says is he actually says that she is a spoiled brat. And I never saw her be a spoiled brat at any moment because we are so focused on her feelings about her situation, particularly with the the marriage that she's, I think she's actually married at that no, point. No, they're engaged. They're engaged. They're okay. engaged because there's invitations. And of course, the invitations yeah. had to be sent back twice and it's just appalling. Right. Thank you. you know? Yes. So we're, we're so focused on how she feels about this pending marriage, this engagement, and her feeling trapped in this life situation and how Jack, as a con- contrast, like makes her feel and, 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 and that sort of stuff that I never see her actually exhibit any spoiled behavior. We even see her have, exhibit compassion for others who are less fortunate than her. And she has an interest and an eye for uh, fine art. Did you ever see, like, oh, yes, she is absolutely spoiled. I I could see why he would feel that way. He's coming from very, 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 very little. He won his ticket onto the Titanic through a gambling game, you know? I, I can understand why he would feel that way, but... So that actually made sense to you? It made sense what he was saying, but I, it, you know... She's more than that. She was also, I think, I think something that people forget is we forget the tantrum that the fiance has and how we get glimpses of his verbal, physical abuse and gaslighting that will occur, continue to occur yes. into the future. Right. So it's not just, it's not like it's a nice guy. Right. That has money and she's just not feeling it. Yeah. No, he's actually a really bad guy. So let's talk about that for a second. Then I want to circle back to Jack and Rose. Uh, Billy Zane's character, whose character's name escapes me right now. But how did you feel about him? Did he did he work for you? Did he feel a little over the top? Was he one uh, dimensional to you? What were your thoughts on his character's his character, Calden Caledon. Caledon Hockley. Thank you. Look, I've I've seen boys like him before. You know, I've seen seventeen-year-olds that act just like that. I didn't think it was over the top. I I didn't think it was unrealistic. He has a man that buys his way. It's established throughout the film. You know, at certain parts. He buys his way through things, and he wants things his way. He has a a bodyguard. Yeah, something a, like that, yeah. A lurch, you know, <laughs> doing things for Play, him his played way. Played by David Warner, who, by the way, was the villain in Tron. Oh, okay. This is a man that, that's going to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And 
he sees that Rose is somewhat weak. And so when she starts getting confident in what she wants and decides how she's going to live her life, he can't even let that go. He's very possessive of her. And so I, th- I thought it was fine. I, I don't like looking at men who have, you know, dark eyelashes and somewhat <laughs> eyeliner anymore. <laughs> it's like it's, it kind of hit my soul and was like. Let me let me ask you this. Did did he feel cartoonish? And if not, in what ways did he avoid being cartoonish? Hmm. I think it was a very tightrope type thing, right? I didn't think he was cartoonish because I've seen this myself. I, I think the eyeliner wasn't necessary. <laughs> I, I think we could have avoided that. I don't know what that was about. I'm, mm. I'm sure there's some sort of significance to it. But no. He was a desperate, he's the spoiled brat. He was a desperate, spoiled brat man. I mean, he uses a kid to get on a lifeboat. Right, and, yeah. And then I'm pretty sure the kid dies because that boat, something happened to it. And uh, he's no longer concerned with that kid, so. Does he not stay on that lifeboat? Something happened to it, but it's it all gets pretty chaotic near the end. So yeah, I could be wrong. It's very chaotic, yeah. Okay, so Rose... Rose, first of all, I will say maybe she's a little bit idealized, but I remember 17 years old watching this movie. Mm-hmm. I was totally all in on Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, and even today, she works pretty well. I mean, it is Kate Winslet in her mainstream breakout role. And I think she's fantastic. My question, though, is... What are your thoughts on the romance, the, the the love between Jack and Rose? Does that uh, relationship work for you? Or is it just really simplistic, broad strokes over big emotions, you know, just uh, the, the, the worst kind of romantic writing? I can see how it would be over the top and simplistic at first. I think as you get older and as you get more experienced, it's a little more subtle. It's there's a little more complexity to it. Very little. It's because it's not sure. It's a love story, mm-hmm. but this film is really about the Titanic and the tragedy of it. Right, yeah. You know? I agree with that. Yes. They're just they're just a highlight of this historic retelling. They're our way in. Yeah. And they're the propeller, so to speak, that that moves the story along. So let's get clear on who these characters are. We have Jack, who is an artist. Mm-hmm. And we have Rose, who loves art. So these are artistically inclined people sure. to some extent. It means they have really big emotions. So it's not like it's unrealistic that... They were writ- they were written incorrectly or something. I think that it's it's fair how they were written and that's fine. I think that I think that she was stunted for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You see how you see a particular scene in the dining hall for the rich people where a mother is very controlling of her daughter and how her daughter is being. Well, and I think that that's what Rose comes from. Yeah. Where she can't express herself. And now she finds this guy that is in awe of her expressions. The first time he meets her, she's trying to kill herself. So by jumping off. He being Jack. Yeah. She's considering jumping off the boat. Yeah. The stern. Yes. <laughs> and P 
people want big romance in their lives. It doesn't always work out. Mm. And so I think it's fine. Is it my favorite love story ever told? We'll find out later. Okay. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I was going to answer it, but okay. <laughs> I I don't think it's overdone. I think you need to have a healthy representation of uh, romance stories. I don't think that this should be one that a kid focuses on. Like I think it's they, frame of reference. Yeah, I think that this should be added much later because mm. it's it's very intense and it's mm. not necessarily what's going to happen for you in the future. And I think that when you look at it in the grand scope of things, uh-huh. it's not the best romance film. Okay. So I think it works. I think it's, 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 it's totally fine. I don't think it's overwrought. I don't think it's sappy. I think you have very clearly a character in Jack who is trying to be supportive of Rose as a person and wants Rose as a person to live how she wants to live and live happily. They talk a lot about the different things, the different experiences and places that they could go see and have. And he actually at one point pulls her aside and and really pushes her about like making sure she's doing something, going through with something that will actually make her happy and fulfill her as a person, hmm. which that's that's when he gets shut down. Uh, for a time by her because of social uh, pressures that she has. But I, I think you do have a healthy, um, you have, you have a, a, a healthy male love interest in, in terms of mm-hmm. how he reacts and what he wants out of the female love interest. It isn't just about an undying love of each other, a very like uh, one dimensional love of each other. Right. Mm. And I think also that attraction and that charisma that that's yeah. Charisma, I suppose is what I'm looking for in between each other is developed. Well, you know, and I think part of it is there's some pretty good lines of dialogue from Jack. Yeah. I, I like his line where he, She's basically saying, please don't judge me. Please don't think I'm yeah, a, a brat or, or whatever. And he's like, that's not what I was thinking at all. I was thinking, why does this poor person feel the need that they can't escape what the situation they're in? Yeah, what could have happened to this poor girl that... Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's... I think you're right. Yeah. I like how you said it. Well done. So, so it does work for me. It's not the selling point of the film for me. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel like it's all in service of getting us to the sinking of the ship, which the iceberg hits at the 97 minute mark mm-hmm. of this film. And so the next hour, 7, 20, hour, I would say hour and a half of the film is the sinking of the ship to the end of the film. Okay, so speaking of that sinking, like, first of all, watching the the, the, the progression of the sinking and everything, 
what were your thoughts about it? What was your experience watching it? I don't know. What what did you want to share about the sneaking? Good, better, and different. It's it's so emotional because they did a brilliant job. I mean, I wasn't there. I've never been at a sinking of a ship, and I don't think I'll ever go on a ship again. <laughs> and even though I read up just briefly that the sinking of the Titanic forced surf- certain safety measures to be put in place so that something like this wouldn't happen again, I the thing is there's still differences in how rich people and poor people are treated and i'm like you know what i don't want any part of that because there's still crap that happens on ships it was so visceral it was so scary i love water i love anything to do with water i did not like what water was doing in this movie they did make water rising pretty effectively terrifying it was so scary and we all know that water is very powerful so at times when you know, one of the characters would get behind steel tubes. I was like, don't go there. <laughs> it was like very frightening because, you know, the pressure at which water moves, it, it, you either get out of the way or you're in the way, you know. So it was very effective. I liked how we had the explorer slash pirates explaining before the the breakage happened mm-hmm. explaining how it was going to break the animatic yeah. yeah so i was like oh okay now i know what to expect now i'm going to know the beats now it's not just going to be this scary ride it's going to be like okay at this point this is going to happen blah blah right blah. so yeah. that was very helpful mm. and helped me engage i guess because at that point it's such a long film well you have the rational explanation of what happens and then you have yeah. the emotional visceral experience yeah. of what happened right and i like that Again, here's Rose, not just not just a pretty face, old Rose, saying, "Well, I remember, I remember that very differently." Right. You know, and yeah. she basically, you know, in the story, she's on different levels, and I felt like they went back too many times, but at the same time, I get it. It was part of the story. We were seeing how different parts of the boat was being affected. Right when the boat has broken broken and then it's going up again broken in half and yeah. then it starts to drag the the stern uh, and down then, like the chimney steep the the uh steam steam um, stack yeah when one of the steam stack falls it's absolutely terrifying so mm-hmm. all of it is a very terrifying experience yeah and then seeing lifeboats that got away safely yeah them watching just the rest of it happened yeah angers me immensely Mm. because it's like well you got to survive you got to live yeah sure you lost some of your loved ones but then you also didn't really help did you so eventually you know yeah that criticism's fair down the line not as much in that moment because you know i think they weren't even supposed to come back till later because they didn't want to get sucked in that was actually something that was explained at one point. Yes, but as we know on Kathy Bates's boat, like right, right, it didn't come back at all. Yeah, well, yes, yes. There's a lot of uh, just uh, tragic aspects to this entire thing. I, I want to say, going back to the water, that is really effectively portrayed numerous times there's the time when the when mr guggenheim 
who decides to just go down with the ship. He sits down and has a brandy. When the water is rising toward him, the look of terror on his face as it's coming. Oh, he's such a great actor. Right? And then you have, you know, you, you say Rose going in, uh, up, in and out, up and down a lot. There is a scene when, or there's a moment when she she's trying to look for help. Right? Because Jack is chained uh, because he got uh, framed for doing something just to get him out of the way. He's chained and left for dead, essentially. And she's trying to get help. She goes upstairs, wanders around. The whole thing must have taken in real time something like 10 minutes. When she comes back down, the water is now like neck level at least. Right? And that is very effective, too, to show, like, the the difference in the water height. Well, and then also watching the subtle makeup on her face, you can see she's starting to become whiter than her usual self. Uh, like paler, paler and, yeah. and then a little bit of a blue is happening. Right, on Whereas her lips, yeah. then you see, like, the first class people back upstairs and... Full color in their faces. You right, know. right. Yeah. And there's a the woman who's like, I just want to go back to my room and grab something really quick. You know, it's like lack of urgency, lack of uh, comprehension of the emergency the entire time. Maybe she that's was, that's how woman. she was dealing with the stress. But the man that then picks her up and puts her down. Yeah. He's like, in the right. Lifeboat. Yeah. Bring it down. Right. <laughs> it was really effective. The, what's also effective is I noticed there is a period of time during the sinking of the ship when there is no score. And Cameron very smartly just lets what happens affect you. And, and just the power of what is happening yeah. be affecting, you know. Um, and, and maybe even during that time, you get a little bit of like the string quartet and the interactions yeah. with the string quartet. But there is no underlying score happening. He doesn't he doesn't allow the score to assault you constantly and make you feel the entire time. He lets the images and what's happening with the various characters and people uh, and extras affect you. Yeah, and the, the sounds of the water. Yes, and, the sound design, yes. Oh, my gosh. So scary. And the sound of wood breaking. Right. That shouldn't, you know, obviously it's going to break, but it shouldn't break, you know. Right. This, uh, this constant arrogance of the ship that will never sink. Right. And honestly, it, the precautions that were supposed to be in place didn't last very long at all. Right. So. Okay, so... Was there anything about this movie that ultimately did not work for you? Yeah, to me, this falls into the boat of um, torture porn. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. It's like historical torture porn. You know what's <laughs> going to happen. Okay. You know all those happy people you see waving to all the happy people on the Titanic that are going to go happily live in America or visit America uh, are going to get to Statue of Liberty, this fantastic icon in my mind yes this is torture porn for me <laughs> so like is it any different from you are you equating it to things like schindler's list and, and 12 years, 12 years a slave, a slave. you think it's on that level look it's it's 12 years a slave falls into its own category because that's like torture the whole time mm. um of people but i mean so schindler's list you know. i i guess so yeah 
but yeah, that's kind. It look, it's it's not the it's not the most torturous, but it does still fall into that category for me. To be honest, you were having a very tough time during during the experience of this movie. I was looking at my notes from the first few minutes of the film, and I'm like, all these people, they're all going to die. Everyone's going to die. <laughs> so many people are going to die. And then I was looking at Titanic statistics, and I was like, 1,500 people are going to die. Dogs? I didn't know dogs were in this movie. And in You see one shot of dogs of being boarded. Dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, Afghans, yeah. Getting a nice little walkies there and just living their best life, getting sure. ocean... Ocean air in their noses. Only three dogs out of, I think, 12 survived. And mm. you don't see any dogs on the lifeboats in the movie. So I'm like, you know what? No. Fuck you, James. Well, Fuck you. I think it's honestly <laughs> smart that he didn't dwell on any animals. That was probably that would have been he didn't too much. have to show them. He yeah. didn't have to even show them. Well, at any rate, what were what were, what didn't work for you about the film? You just the, the fact that it's it's a it's a kind it's of a, a torture experience and it lasts over three hours. Gotcha. You know? It's a fine film. It's not one I'm going to watch again. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Gotcha. You know, it, but no, but nothing. Uh, I'm never going to watch Twelve Years a Slave again. Right. That I, is tough. I might watch Schindler's List. I don't know. When are we showing that to our stepson? I mean, my my. Let's just make such decisions right <laughs> as we're recording a podcast, shall we? You know, yeah. like I might watch that with him, but yeah. you know, one day we're going to have another kid, so it's like, okay, do I watch it with this kid or with the other kid? Oh, it's an so. either or lifelong thing. <laughs> I see. Maybe is. What about you? I totally get it. I I don't feel the same way, but I'm also someone who feels like it's important to experience these things. Mm-hmm. So we're not glossing over or dehumanizing or taking out of totally. these things, you know. I, I to my question going into it, I did half expect okay, maybe the romance isn't going to work. M- maybe there's aspects of this movie that is weaker than others. I didn't come out of it feeling that way. Do I feel like there's elements that's stronger than others? Yes, but I don't think there's anything about the film that just sucks and just does not work. It holds up really well. It's a great film. What do you give the movie out of 10? Probably a 9. I Everybody should see this film. I, I do agree with you. I do agree with you. I don't I, think 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds should see this film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, Thanks, mom and dad. I mean, really, like I, I do, I do agree. Like teens should watch the film because that's when you probably have the cognitive ability to handle a film of this length. Yeah, and it doesn't. It's not a film full of gags. It's not a film full of humor. It's not a film for kids. So, but yes, I, I think I agree with you. A nine out of ten. So Titanic. 25 years later, we think holds up extremely well, is probably better than pop culture likes to think of it as, um, and is actually an ex- extremely well-crafted big-budget film. It'll be nice to see like the generation that didn't grow up how we did with it. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they pick it up. And appreciate it. Well, that generation is. I mean, they're adults here. now. Yeah, you know? they're so. here. So I, I'm hoping that they, I'm hoping we get opinions. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you think of Titanic. Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time for us to move on to hear about other kinds of love stories. Shannon was Here talking comes about our spectrum. <laughs> Shannon was talking about a spectrum of different love stories. Yeah. Let's hear if Titanic is in there and what other kinds of love stories are included in our favorite love stories of all time. For those who are not familiar, I always assume this is the first episode for somebody. Film Faves is the part of the show where we count down our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. The idea is to give you a sense of our taste in film, but also hopefully expose you to titles you have not seen yet or even heard of before. To that end, we will point you in the direction of what streaming services they are available on. We focus on Amazon Prime, Apple TV+, Hulu, HBO Max, Netflix, and Disney. Disney Plus. A lot of the times these movies are only available to rent on like Amazon or Apple TV Plus, but we will let you know when it's available on a subscription service to make it easy for you. Now, love stories. Love stories. Shanna, I found in prep for this episode AFI's list oh, of yeah. the 100 greatest love stories in american cinema now i'm not going to read to you that list because that's 100 movies and that's a full nonsense to do in this podcast especially since we spent so much time talking about titanic but i will tell you their criteria and this is the criteria i pretty much had in mind when trying to formulate this list for us i really hope i got it right what is the criteria love story colon regardless of genre a romantic bond between two or more characters whose actions or intentions provide the heart of the film's narrative, which basically means the driving force of the film. Okay? So that's what we're looking at when we're looking at love stories. The story itself is a love story. A large part of it, anyway, is a love story, right? So in the case of Titanic, we talked a lot about how, really, this is about the sinking of the Titanic, but it's propelled, so to speak, by a love story. So it would qualify, right? Tell us a little bit, Shanna, about your crafting of the list and any challenges that you had uh, what sort of things did you take into consideration without spoiling your list in crafting it? So this was one of those lists where I actually ended up with about 30 films. So it was very difficult for me to nail it down. That and does not happen for you no, very it, often. No, it really doesn't. And it was very difficult, but I kind of... What I wanted was a variety. So, you know, there's some drama, there's some comedy, there's some, there's even a musical. I wanted to try and get an animated one in there, but it ended up not making what? the cut. So- <laughs> there's one in particular yeah. I'm shocked to hear. Uh, tragedy? Is there tragedy? Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> I'm done with that shit. So uh, does does it hit the spectrum in that way? No, we just spoke about the spectrum pointer for tragedy, you know. Earlier. Melodrama? 
Melodrama. Um, you know, like Nicholas Sparks level melodrama. God, I can't stand that shit either. <laughs> oh no, I'm like, you know what? I really don't want that. If it's that melodramatic, don't yeah. don't do it. All <laughs> right. Know? So that's so. what's lacking, and there's no Western, obviously. So R- oh, actually, Western love story. Hmm, I'd have to ponder on that one. Uh, so no Twilight, perhaps either. <laughs> <laughs> No, because that's also like torture porn. (laughs) (laughs) Of a different kind. Yeah, yeah, a different kind. Go ahead. Anything else you want to share about the crafting of your list? There's like no 16-year-old trying to run away. Mm. Oh, wait, there is. (laughs) Just take that out. That's funny. (laughs) Or teen movies. Well, you know, uh, you know, there's no teen movies, I I don't think. Mm, Um, It just didn't make it because... Here's the thing. This list is forever going to change. I'm pretty sure my top three or top four will never change, but everything else will change because as we grow older and as we live through our relationship, interpretation and understanding of what makes love love uh, enhances. Okay. So uh, this is a very fluid list. Also, your 12 favorite movies of all time were there uh, any fucking exempt movies on that list that you couldn't take into consideration here? Yeah, so I had two films that didn't make the list. It's my favorite number one and favorite number three of all time. That is Arrival, a sci-fi film. And then number three, directed by Zoe Lister-Jones, Band-Aid. Mm. Totally would have made this list. For me, there's only one that I could not use on my list. What is it? Uh, apparently, it's my favorite love story of all time. And it is, I think it was number 12 on my 12 favorites here. Number 10, sorry. 500 Days of Summer. Oh, of course. Well, and I do have ideas of what might be on your list. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting into this. So for if you want to hear more of our thoughts about those movies and others, check out episode 95 of the movie lovers where we count down our favorite movies of all time. The, that is the climax of a years long journey going backwards through time. And even that year, we kind of talk about our favorites of all time. Uh, and so you can look at those past episodes too. Does so, your list range in years or are there particular decades that are more heavy with your today's list? list? Yeah fascinating i let's answer that let's put a pin in that and try to answer that after we've gone through um because i'm not sure the answer and i i don't want to look at my list right now okay (laughs) but that is a good question let's take a look at that later for for me actually i benefited greatly off of having already done articles about my hundred favorite movies of all time there are two or three movies on my list that are not on those articles but I was able to draw greatly from having already done that. This was a very easy experience for you. It was much easier. Yes, yes it's yes. so easy for you. All right, with all that, <laughs> all that preamble out of the way, let's get into your twelfth favorite love story. Sure, my number twelve is available on Netflix. I highly recommend purchasing it if you're into romance films and the spectrum of romance representation. It is the Marriage Story. It is. Oh. <laughs> Okay, 
your reaction's funny. It's Noah Bumbuck's incisive, compassionate look at a marriage, breaking up, and a family staying together. And, you know, you were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, love a, breaking I, yeah. up. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, what's done really great about this film is, you know, there was love there before certain things occur from certain people in this relationship and then you see a big portion of it is the breaking up of this this couple and you know at the end you see them trying to make it work and that's why it's on my list is they are trying to still be a family they share a child together and they're trying to respect that child by at least respecting each other. And there's this beautiful moment where they told they are told by their psychologist that they need to write a letter of what of why they fell in love in the first place, so that they can remember that there was this time where there was love that existed between the two of them. If there wasn't, you know, like they wouldn't have this beautiful child, you know. That is starring Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson and a bunch of other wonderful people, but it's really their story. Excellent marriage story on Netflix. I did not expect that to make your list, and that is an awesome... The Spectrum, my Awesome love. pick. <laughs> wonderful. My 12th favorite love story is not available on a subscription service. It is Before Sunrise, mm. the first of a trilogy so far, and... One that I thought, you know, I can't not acknowledge this as as a love story. Basically, you have Ethan Hawke meeting Julie Delpy on a train. I want to say in France. He's he's on a trip and he's about to go home. They meet. They, they connect. He invites her to join him as he was planning on walking around the city before his train that he's going to take or his flight or whatever it is. To go back home. He was basically planning on killing time. And so they spend this time together just walking around the city and talking. And for anyone of a particular age, I probably came across this in my early 20s, I mm. want to say. Definitely so not. A good time to for you to watch it. Yeah, definitely not when uh, it first came out. Uh, I caught up with it later worked so well and was so great and you know how it leaves off it's just one of those movies that you know if you watch it at a particular time it absolutely works and connects for you and you can relate to it and you just you want that experience so badly maybe Mm -hmm. not how it ends but you want the experience of being able to and, and, and you know that's one of the exciting things about a new relationship is getting to know the person and just talking for hours on end. So that is before sunrise. It is my 12th favorite love story. Yeah. So I forgot to mention that the marriage story, my number 12 is from 2019. And then this one, this next one is from 2015. It isn't available to stream anywhere, but you can rent it from Apple TV. It is Brooklyn. And oh, I, wow. Really? Yeah. Oh. I love this one. I'm totally going to get choked up talking about it. I did not know that. Okay. Um, Starring Saoirse Ronan, an Irish immigrant lands in 1950s Brooklyn, where she quickly falls into a romance with a local, uh, an Italian immigrant. I think he's first generation American, Mm. but of an Italian family. Uh, And her past catches up with her and she needs to go back to Ireland. And then she needs to make the decision like, 
where is her life going to to occur it's a wonderful film about a romance that happens and you know i don't think she was meant to stay in america mm. i think she was meant to come for a bit of work for a while to clear her head to mm. earn some money and then come back mm. to ireland but she stays for love and it's a beautiful relationship they're very sweet with each other they have this sort of worry that well they have a worry that they're their two cultures are going to clash, but they make it work and it's it's beautiful and uh, totally relatable. This falls into the drama romance category in sure. case you were interested of which ones you want to watch when you need a good cry and which ones you want to watch when you need a comedic moment. <laughs> Very cool. And that film is? Brooklyn from 2015. Excellent. Uh, Before Sunrise came out in 1995, my next film came out in 1987. Very different time. Also a movie that could not go unacknowledged. Dirty Dancing. That made your list? It absolutely. Are you kidding me? Wow. Okay. That so did not factor for me because it was so overdone as I was growing up. But I'm so happy for you. Good for you. I love Dirty Dancing. <laughs> it, it is a fine film. Go so, in and tell us about it. So you have Jennifer Grey, who is a 16 or so year old, who joins their family into the Catskills. I believe this is territory that Marvelous's Mrs. Maisel explores yeah, a little. Definitely. Uh, if I recall correctly, this is taking place in the 60s. Actually, so is Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, actually. Uh, early 60s, by the way. Before things get tumultuous, you have tough guy Patrick Swayze, who's actually one of the dance teachers there. He gets, uh, she gets involved with him, actually, much to his uh, his chagrin, because he didn't want to have anything to do with her. But she helps out in a desperate situation, and one thing leads to another, and sparks fly, and an excellent soundtrack plays and it's it's just um it actually i oh god i want to say when we did our favorite soundtracks that this movie had to have come it, up it probably came up for oh you. man so great soundtrack great chemistry jennifer gray patrick swayze great montages great cast i love dirty dancing i actually think i have a very nice keepsake box set on blu-ray of this movie. Mm. So that's my 11th favorite, 1987's Dirty Dancing. My number 10 is not available to stream. It is Groundhog Day, a comedy, drama, fantasy, play with time category. Oh, yeah. Of you're, the romance you're jam. nature. Yeah, yeah totally. A self centered Pittsburgh where the man finds himself inexplicably trapped in a small town as he lives the same day over and over again until you learn your fucking lesson. Uh, it is Bill Murray and Andy McDowell. There's a few other fun people in there like mm. Stephen Tobolowsky yep. and so many more but I'm not going to get into that but I love the romance in here because it's basically it's a chance to figure out how not to approach someone and how to approach someone and it's it's really fun in that aspect it's like they're not being severely punished mm. like it's not like they're never going to see that person again it's like I really like this person but I'm working through my own developmental hell and I don't know how to be a good person but I really like this person and I want to be with this person but I'm such a shithead and I like that he's working through his Mm. eventually working through like how to be a better person so he can be with this person Mm. Um, I really like that concept 
There's a lot to dig in there about that that lo- that romance. I love that film. The film's classic. Yeah, and that's from 1993, Groundhog Day. My 10th favorite, this will make you happy, love. It was actually in my 100th favorite. We're getting into my 100th favorite movies. And uh, I, I just felt like I needed to include it also because you can't. It is Band-Aid. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But from, please go on about why you love that film. <laughs> from 2017. Available on Hulu, I, if I'm not yes. mistaken. My first film on my list that's available to stream somewhere. Shannon mentioned this movie before by Zoe Lister-Jones. Adam Pally plays her husband. Fred Armisen plays their neighbor. This is a marriage that is going through a hard time. And they lash out at each other. And they all the little things become big things. And they decide to deal with it by writing songs. Mm-hmm. And it seems constructive, and, and until it's not, and, and and all these other things about it, it, it's it's funny, it's relatable, it's heartbreaking, it's very well performed and endearing, and I, you know, it's it's a movie that we have championed numerous times in this this podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, not enough people know about it. So I guess we will keep championing this film, Band Aid. From 2017. Apparently, you will because it's on my forbidden list. I will. I will help <laughs> us with that love and speak okay. speak on our behalf. People can check it out on Hulu. My number nine is a more recent. There's a lot of recent films. Uh, mm. This one's from 2019. It's definitely in the comedy genre of romance. It is long shot. Really? So, it's so freaking fun. I am really surprised. That's one of your favorite love stories. How yeah. about that? Uh, well, I tried to do the spectrum thing. Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. Uh, this is a really fun one. Seth Rogen is a journalist and he's reunited with his childhood crush. Basically, she was the babysitter. So it's a bit weird. Oh, I forgot um, about that. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit weird. <laughs> she is one of the most influential women and she's preparing to run for either vice presidency or presidency. So she's not recall. the president in the movie. No, she's not. Okay. And there's a lot of funny things that are happening here it's awkward for a while i couldn't get the get past the fact that oh my god this is his this used to be his babysitter and i'm in the you know nanny world so i'm like oh uh, uh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> i well, am a nanny so i'm like oh but it's well set up that they're not that different i think age. it's like five or seven years so it's really not a big deal once you hit that right you know once you're 20 once the youngest is 24 it doesn't really matter does right, it right, right so it's very important that you have that time so i i thought this was a really fun film i love the two of them together i think they make i think they have great chemistry i fell in love with it i wish i could watch it more and more often i'm probably going to watch it tomorrow so uh that is my pick a uh, long shot from 2019 my ninth favorite love story is from 2010 it is scott pilgrim versus the world Oh, good choice so I think that Edgar Wright, while he doesn't always knock it out of the park, he is in many ways a bit of a, a, a cinematic genius. I think Scott Pilgrim is a film that has been criminally overlooked, but is actually just really brilliant. I know it's adapted from a series of comics, 
by Brian Leo Malley, if I'm not mistaken. And I've never read those. So uh, I know he can't take full credit, but the way he's able to translate these, these stories into cinematic form visually as well as conceptually is outstanding. This is a movie about growing up enough to be able to have a healthy relationship with anyone mm-hmm. and, and, and with yourself too. And I think that's something that a lot of men of a certain age can relate to the challenges of, you know, be, you know, being afraid to admit when he's done wrong to someone, you know, mm-hmm. hurt, been hurtful to someone in some way, been a little cowardly. And also the experience of dealing with someone else's baggage of their past relationships too. I think this film has a lot to mine. It is of course, absolutely a blast. It is visually just really fun and funny, but underneath the surface, there's a a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So I love it. Scott Pilgrim versus the world from 2010. This is a Criterion choice, and I always like to give a shout out to that. Movies um, in the Criterion collection. In the Criterion collection. collection. It mm-hmm. means it means it's good, okay? It's not just my opinion. Right. And it's available on Hulu, which is pretty exciting. I thought it would be on HBO because they have a lot of Criterion stuff right now. But, yeah. Uh, but this one is on Hulu, so I don't know what cool deal they have. I think it's before it became Criterion, so. What the hell is it? It is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's been on Hulu, yes. Yeah. So on an isolated island in Brittany at the end of the 18th century, a female painter is obliged to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman. It's a really slow, beautiful film. There's so much about it that I love. It's not just about this relationship that blossoms between two people, but it's also about women of that time and what it was like to be a woman and how it's still somewhat the same at, at, in certain aspects. So I, I love that film. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, and that's from 2019. Directed by Celine Sciamma and recently voted on Instagram by, uh, by Instagram as their favorite or the best film directed by a woman. Interestingly enough. Great pick. My eighth favorite love story is one I guarantee most of you listeners have not seen. It is 2004's Bride and Prejudice by... (gasps) That was going to make my list. Oh. Grinda Chata's kind of... Bollywood musical adaptation of Jane Austen's story. We've talked about this film a few times on the podcast. Uh, it's very colorful. It's lively. You have Ashariah Rai giving a absolutely enchanting performance as who is it? The Elizabeth Bennet of the of the story. I, I don't know. I'm not that big a Jane Austen fan, but. Mm-hmm. Most of this movie is absolutely excellent. You might be able to argue the merits of Martin Henderson in it as the Darcy. I get it, but I am absolutely charmed by the music, Mm -hmm. the set pieces, 
the the Indian family, everything about this movie I adore. Such a great retelling of a classic. Yes. You can still have fun with a classic. Like you can take a classic and make it something unique. Yes, I agree. And Grenachada absolutely does that here. One of my favorites. I've always loved it. 2004's Bride and Prejudice is my eighth favorite love story. Yeah, so my number seven goes back in time a little bit. We're going to 1938, and it is available to stream on HBO Go, which is fantastic. Uh, It might be a criterion. You'll need to tell me if it is. It's Bringing Up Baby. It just, this past few months, Ah, was added to the collection. We own it on Criterion Blu-ray. Yeah. So while trying to secure a $1 million donation for his museum, a befuddled paleontologist is pursued by a flighty and often irritating heiress and her pet leopard baby. And this is starring Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. I was hoping that I'd have a Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy film, but I I figured, you know, we have a project like that coming up soon, so I I thought I'll just wait, and this definitely made the cut. It is so funny. I just was watching the trailer on silent, and it's hilarious. There's so much physical comedy to it, and timing, Mm. and dialogue is really fun, but it's really the physical stuff and the expressions that both of them make uh, that makes me really happy in this film. And the ending is just, it's really funny. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, That is credited as the first, if not the most influential screwball comedy. And that it sure is. I adore that movie. I'm so glad we own that movie. It's Bringing Up Baby, and it's available on HBO to stream. (gasps) Nice. It is, yeah. Probably because it falls into that criteria. He has our Criterion collection. Noise. You just have to go to the TCM hub to find those. Mm-hmm. My seventh favorite love story is from 2004. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. See, for me, that one also falls into torture porn. <laughs> oh, really? In a way, yeah. I, I might have to rewatch it, but I don't know if I want to. I kind of want to right now. Oh, okay. I, I, I kind of want to watch Dirty Dancing also, but... I always thought this movie was amazing. Just absolutely extraordinary. It has been a while since I've watched it, but you know, it's just brilliantly creative. The idea of taking your worst relationship and just being able to remove it from memory completely. You know, worst being either it was a really like you shouldn't have even gotten involved with that person in the first place or just it's it was so painful for whatever reason. And it explores that via Jim Carrey. And you have Kate Winslet as Clementine, the woman in question being erased. And, and, and you have an extraordinary cast around those two. And it's just, it's just one of those things. And it's like, as he starts reliving his memories, as they start to go, he remembers the good times. It's not Mm. just about the pain that he's currently feeling. And he starts to regret the, uh, even the idea of not having these memories anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, 
it, it's just such a great film. I like this is a film that should be added to the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. This is one of the greatest films since the turn of the century. I love it so much, and I urge you to check it out if you haven't already. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from 2004. My number six is a more recent one from 2017. It's available to stream on Prime. How exciting. I suggest you go and do this one now because it really is a feel-good one. It's by uh, Pakistan-born comedian Kumal Nanjani and grad student Emily Gardner. They fall in love but struggle when their cultures clash when Emily contracts a mysterious illness. Kumal finds himself forced to face her feisty parents and his family's expectations and his true feelings all at the same time. How wonderful. It's brilliant. Uh, It's got Holly Hunter and Ray Romano as the parents and Zoe Kazan as the love interest. It's based on a true story. It's so relatable. It's wonderful. It's hilarious. It's so great. I I love that this became a film. And I, I love its lightheartedness, but it with its comedic delivery, it's also dealing with serious issues too. So uh that is the big sick available on Prime from 2017. Very cool pick. Would not have thought of that. That's what? usually surprising me left and right in terms of what ended up on your list. It's That's very cool. usually on your list. <laughs> well, it is a great film. My sixth favorite, as we enter the halfway point of this list, is maybe the only animated movie on my list. Oh, what is it? 1989's The Little Mermaid on Disney+. Plus. You do have a 16-year-old trying to leave the family for the love of a boy. I guess. Human boy. Sure, <laughs> sure. I'm not sure that it's the love story in particular okay. that I that makes me love this movie so much as the animation and the songbook. I think there are sequences in this film that are among the most beautiful and powerful in all of Disney's history most stirring i mean part of your world is certainly a top three disney moment uh as far as i'm concerned it's also really funny too sebastian the crab is a great character really funny i mean he has to deal with a french character of a chef named louis and try to survive him but there's other things and it has a great villain one of the best villains in Disney lore, there's a lot of elements that makes Little Mermaid top shelf Disney. I love it. I don't think Eric is necessarily the 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 thing that I I come to the movie for, or the relationship between Ariel and Eric, but everything else around it, I love. So Little Mermaid... Why does this qualify for your list? Because it's a fucking love story, my friend. Okay, man. And I love this movie. And it's a love story. So there. <laughs> it's my sixth favorite. 1989 on Disney+. Plus, Little Mermaid. It's just a little confusing because you're not coming at it for Eric and the relationship between Ariel and Eric. Do you come to it for Eric? 
I mean, the black hair and the blue eyes are kind of nice, but Fair no, enough. I come, I come to it because of Ariel. There you go. <laughs> okay, my next one is available on HBO. It is from 1952. Yay, variety. Fifty-two. <laughs> Singing in the rain. Oh, okay, okay. You ready to have now, this out with me? Speaking no, of well, musicals, here's the thing. Songbooks. Here's the thing. Mm. It is actually number. Jeff's pulling, pushing his glasses up. No, actually, it is actually number sixteen on the AFI's list of hundred greatest love stories. So far, be it from me to yeah. argue with the AFI. Okay, you're not gonna push back on them. Okay, far be it from me to argue with the AFI. All right, this stars Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds, Gene Hagen, and a bunch of other people. But this is a film about, you know, the fi- the silent film era is, you know, coming to an end. And it's starting to become talkies. And so they're seeing this transition in Hollywood from one kind of film type to a- another. And Gene Kelly falls for... Debbie Reynolds, who is a chorus girl and delightful and awesome and also doesn't take crap. And this causes his normal co-star, film co-star, to get super jealous and makes it even more difficult for them to transition from one medium to another. But I love how they are coming together and how they are passionate about you know, she's already passionate about her career and where she's at with things and very expressive and talented. And then he kind of jumps on board and it, for, I think he falls in love with her passion and finds his own in this new medium that they're going to experiment with. And of course, it doesn't hurt to have Donald O'Connor being the third wheel, having fun with everyone. This is a very fun film. I love it. Singing in the Rain on HBO. I agree, is a great film, and I, too, love it. However, my fifth favorite love story is from 1989, once again, (laughs) When Harry Met Sally. I knew this was going to make your list. On HBO Max, you knew it was going to make my list because you'd have to be crazy not to have it on your list. That's why. It was in my first draft. Okay, well, then you got crazy and somehow, or you just, it slipped through the cracks somehow for you. Why don't you just go on about your own choice? (laughs) So when Harry met Sally, Rob Reiner's classic film, written, co-written with uh, Nora Ephron, starring Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, as two longtime acquaintances who become best friends, who go through a lot together, can men ha- be platonic with women? That is the question at the core of this film. And of course, it does answer that question by the end. Worth noting also, you have the contrast of the BFFs, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, who do end up together halfway through the film. They are delightful as they bicker and other things is is a, a, a hilarious movie, a classic film. It does not get written any better than this When Harry Met Sally from 1989, available on HBO Max. 
Awesome. I believe my next one is also available from HBO Max and it is from 2002. I absolutely adore this freaking film so much. I quote it all the time with my family. I'm thinking of using Windex on an oh. acne spot right now. I'm considering it, guys. <laughs> it's not a good idea. And I'm not giving medical advice, but I'm considering it. It is my big fat Greek wedding. A young Greek woman falls in love with a non-Greek man and struggles to get her family to accept him while she comes to terms with her heritage and cultural identity. Mm. This is such a fun film. I love it. I laugh a lot during this film. I quote it with my family all the time. Mm. Uh, we are not Greek and we will say he's not Greek. <laughs> this is kind of like just for fun, you mm. know. And there's just, there's so many quotable moments here. There's so many funny moments. I just, I have so much fun with it. And uh, the cast is... Endless. There's a long cast. Oh, there's so many people here. And because I am not Greek, I cannot say the names. <laughs> so we've got, of course, the fabulous Nia Vardolos. We've got Sean Corbert. We've got Michael Constantine. Michael Constantine. And uh, who yes. is the mom? Lainey Kazan. Yes. And there's, oh, there's just so many people in this freaking film. We've got the fabulous, scintillating Andrea Martin. It's just, it's such a fun time. And uh, the director is Joel Zwick. And I just, I want to go watch this film actually before I watch Longshot, which makes sense because it's high in the film list. But <laughs> I, I love this film. I love that she, you know, goes through this transformation when she goes and does a computer course and she gets right. this fantastic confidence and knows who she is as a woman finally. And, and then she finds love. And it's just one of those wonderful examples of kind of how we met, like, once you are comfortable with yourself and know who you are and find mm. that that person in yourself, you can find your person. And mm. I just, I love it. So that's my Big Fat Greek Wedding available on HBO. I thought maybe a different film from 2002 would be what you're going to call. Maybe it's coming still. I don't know. I'll be surprised if it's not. Huh. My fourth favorite love story is available on oddly enough hulu and disney plus i'm not sure why oh, that's on disney interesting plus. what is it it is from mm, 1986 i believe uh the princess bride oh i see which is on in the Criterion Collection also, by the way. So as you said... I bought it for you. As you said, <laughs> a great film because <laughs> it wouldn't be in the Criterion Collection if it weren't. I, Jeff's giving me a hard time because I am not a huge fan of this film. Yeah, you're crazy. But please go on. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and uh, Speaking of films, let's quote it. I, I quote it often. Yes. Um, yes. Carrie Elwes. So does every other American. And Robin Wright stars the the primary couple in this film. It is a fantasy adventure comedy as told through a storybook by Peter Falk to his grandson, Fred Savage. It is a hilarious film. It is a delightful film. It is a feel-good film on par with Singing in the Rain. It doesn't even have songs, and it can still make you feel good. It's a it's a classic. It's a month. It doesn't make you feel good. 
Oh, pop culture has absolutely embraced this film and has yes. been quoted so many times in so many different ways. Wallace Shawn is magnificent and Andre the Giant and more. Love it. How can you hate it? If you're a human being, you oh will God. love The Princess Bride. I just keep getting jabbed here. All right. On Hulu and Disney+. Plus. All right. Uh, my number three is Ever After, the Cinderella story. And Whoa, really? It's, wow. It's just... I really need to get you that movie. I had no idea you loved it that much. Honey, I think we have it in the DVD section. We'll have to look. <laughs> okay. Huh. So the Brothers Grimm arrive at the home of a wealthy grand dame who speaks of the many legends surrounding the fable of the Cinder Girl before telling them the true story of her ancestor. I love this film. It's just... At first, I wasn't into it. And then I heard someone one of my classmates talk about it in a particular way and I was like you know what she's right that is definitely I need to watch this again and when I ever since I watched it then I'm like you know what this is fantastic this is such a better version of a Cinderella story Disney has nothing on this Uh, it stars Drew Barrymore Angelica Houston Mm. Dougree Scott Patrick Godfrey as the great Leonardo da Vinci yeah, that'll make a film awesome if you throw someone in like that. Hmm. Uh, we've got Megan Dodds, Timothy West, Judy Parfait. Did you say Melanie Linsky? Isn't she in it? Yes, Melanie Linsky. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great film. I love it. This is definitely one of those like examples of... There's definitely sadness and control in here because evil stepmother... Uh, and I'm not a huge fan of the evil stepmother trope, but it's fine in this case. And uh, just an example of Cinderella trying to, who's Danielle, trying to stay pure, trying to stay good, trying to trying to stay the course for herself. And it ends up working well. I, I love this film. That is Ever After. That is a surprising uh, pick. I, I always liked it, but I, I never would have expected it to be on your list or so Spectrum, high. Spectrum, baby. My third favorite is also from 2004. It is also by Edgar Wright. It is Shaun of the Dead. The uh-huh. zombie romantic comedy. Of course, the entire thing that propels this film is how Shaun needs to get to his estranged girlfriend and make sure she's okay and make sure they survive what is happening around them. This film is brilliant. It is hilarious. Uh, It's one of the funniest movies of the 2000s. It is not a parody of the zombie film, rather just making a comedy within the zombie film and just kind of loving the zombie genre, especially the Romero films, uh, taking it also in place in in London. So, this film is both hilarious and and sweet, but also even occasionally gory. It's got everything, and it's Nick Frost and and Simon Pegg, two BFFs, probably some of the best chums that you'll ever see in films. Uh, yes, that 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 relationship drives the film and is the entire reason for the film. And it works, and it's great, and I love it. Shaun of the Dead from 2004 is my third favorite love story. 
All right, Shannon, we're down to the final two. Final what is two. your second favorite love story? My uh, second one also takes place in London. Hmm. How fun. 2013, it is about time. Uh, I knew this was going to be on your list. Okay. Absolutely. At the age of 21, Tim discovers he can travel in time and change what happens and has happened in his own life. His decision to make his world a better place by getting a girlfriend, <laughs> this is what he really wants in life, uh, turns, turns, not, turns out not to be as easy as he might think. And it's just really fascinating. It's it's Domhnall. Gleason, Rachel McAdams, Bill Nye, Lydia Wilson, Lindsay Duncan, Richard Cordery, and a bunch of other people. But, you know, this is pre-Star Wars for Gleason, and it's really fun watching him in this movie. And him and Rachel McAdams are a great chemistry, and I know that you see this as a film, as definitely a father-son film. And yeah, yeah. Sure, it is, but... I mean, like the description just said, uh, Tim wants a girlfriend. <laughs> That's right. what he wants in life. Right, and, right, right. you know, he comes across Rachel McAdams, Mary, and it's just this wonderful relationship and so great because it works with it works with the, the whole concept of time. Like you can't go back. You can't go forward. You can only try and be present and live in the moment. Uh, so I love it so much. That's about time. Excellent film. Definitely underrated. My second favorite love story is one that the AFI named the 11th greatest love story in American cinema. So far be it for you to argue with the AFI. What what movie is it now that I don't like? <laughs> it's from 1977. It was the Best Picture winner of 1977. It is Annie Hall. By Woody oh, Allen. Fuck sex. Okay, great. <laughs> Which I think, unfortunately, gets tainted by events that took place years later. Under understand? I get it. I get it. I I totally get it. If you're if you're not going to support any Woody Allen movie because of things that happened years later, I totally get it. That's your prerogative. But this film is an exceptionally crafted romantic comedy on its own merits. And it is brilliant and it is creative. And I can't believe that it was actually originally a B plot or even a C plot to a murder mystery when it was first being written. Because... This thing on it's just like he carved out this perfect little thing out of this murder mystery, which he eventually used oh God, 15 years later or something in, in a movie called Manhattan Murder Mystery in itself. Pretty enjoyable film. I don't think Woody Allen, you know, I love slapstick early Woody Allen. But this is Woody Allen, like, in the next phase of his career when he matured a little bit and was also, like, saying something about relationships but also and saying something about love but also, like, injecting a lot of brilliant, clever humor. And I, I love it when a film can do that. I love it when a film actually says something about love 
and relationships and does so creatively and brilliantly. Mm. And this film does that. There are so many moments in the film I just laugh out loud at. That is Annie Hall, 1977, my second favorite love story. All right. Any guesses as to what my number one is? Amelie. Oh, no. Oh. I mean, it was in the draft, but I no. can't. I cannot believe it's not on list. I have no idea what your favorite love story is. If You already said, you've hinted, you've suggested that it's not Lady in the Tramp, so I don't know. I really don't know. All right, it's from 2013. What? Mm-hmm. It hits the fantasy category. Fantasy from yeah. 2013? <laughs> it's got Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston. Oh, you John mean Hurt. horror, not fantasy. Oh, they're listing it as fantasy. What the fuck? Uh, but yeah, I remember now that you usually categorize it as horror. It's like my only favorite horror. Uh, it is only lovers left alive. Because a- they're fucking vampires, which are horror creatures. <laughs> okay, then. <clears throat> A depressed musician reunites with his lover, though their romance, which has already endured several centuries, is disrupted by the arrival of her uncontrollable sister. I love this film. I, you know, I watched Titanic and I'm like, they didn't have enough time and a bunch of other films where it's like they didn't have enough time. But I see only lovers left alive and they've had so much time together and they've They've enjoyed each other nearby and far away. He's living in Detroit at the time and she's living somewhere in Europe. Mm. And she's like, you sound a little odd. You know, they spend time apart from each other if they need to. And when she hears that he needs her, she is there. And it is a beautiful, like, I guess passionate, but also really, really like, subtle reuniting and it's just lovely how they are together and how they hold on to each other how they're near each other how they seem to just vibrate this this energy that they are one i just love it so much that is only love is left alive wow okay very cool i i shouldn't be surprised but i yeah completely slipped my radar there okay so aside from 500 Days of Summer, which is actually my favorite, and obviously Band-Aid and Arrival are your actual favorite love stories. What do you think is technically my second, but for the purposes of this list, Uh, my uh favorite love story of all time? Is it Jerry Maguire? No. Oh, wow. I'm surprised. I considered Jerry Maguire, but the thing is, I don't think... The movie is about the relationship. I think it's about the guy and the career and like the things he needs to do as a person. Okay. This isn't a Jerry Maguire show. We get it. What what is your favorite? <laughs> you don't even go to take another guess? Well, I know it's not how to lose a guy in ten days. <laughs> Fuck off. No. Is it something from the the trilogy, the which trilogy? Uh, what was your number 12? Before Sunrise? Yeah, is it one of those? No. Oh, okay. What is it? Moulin Rouge from 2001. Oh, I see. Available okay. on Hulu. Lovely choice. I think I've talked about this before. Yeah. I know we have when we did 2001 a while back now. The, actually, 
I intended to start this announcement <laughs> by quoting the greatest thing <laughs> you'll ever learn is how to love and be loved in return. I think it's just to love and be loved in return. But I'm just going to push beautiful. your glasses up a little <laughs> more. Oh, for come you. on. That was lovely, honey. So Nature Boy, of course, being quoted. That's David Bowie's Nature Boy being quoted in Moulin Rouge. The primary thesis of Moulin Rouge, a film I absolutely adore. It's a, If it's not my favorite musical, it's definitely a, one of my three favorite musicals. Actually, I think we did that, didn't we? We had we, an episode about musicals. It, it was featured in that, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you can go back and listen if you want to. Just absolutely kinetic wonderful characters extraordinary song performances and reinterpretations of these song well-known songs at the time uh just it's just and it also spurned an entire trend of musicals at least one big musical hit came out a year for a while but it is a it is a tragedy Huh? But it is, <laughs> you know, and let you know that right up front. You know, it's not, it's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a great one. It's, it's, it's fun. It's hilarious. It's sad. It's just stirring as all fuck. It's Moulin Rouge from two thousand four, or two thousand one. I'm sorry. Find it on Hulu. It is my number one love story for this list. Shanna, what movies? <laughs> Fell off your list as you're making this. There's no particular order, but things like uh, things I was considering uh, ranged: Lady and the Tramp, Two Days in New York, Crazy Stupid Love, Mr. Nobody, Thirteen Going on Thirty, wow. Your Name, Secretary, Crazy Rich Asians, Huh, Best Years of Our Lives, The Apartment, Best Crash- Years of Our Lives, Really considered. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Lunchbox. Wow. Crouching Tiger, that's a solid choice. I wanted to rewatch Secret in Our Eyes, but I just always run out of time to rewatch that to see if it would have qualified. I wanted to have a foreign film, but it didn't quite work. Bride and Prejudice, uh, Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet, Buzz Lerman's, of course, Mm. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, so I guess I had mentioned earlier that there wasn't going to be any teenagers running off but i thought that moonrise kingdom had been my list and so that's why i backtracked (laughs) but i guess no teenagers running off did make my list so uh yeah what what did you consider i have only three in contrast that didn't make my list sleepless in seattle oh yeah just Mm -hmm. barely did not make my list Mm -hmm. uh the keenan i mm-hmm and bringing up baby, your pick. Love bringing up baby. Almost made my list. I do also love his girl Friday, but I, I love these other ones way more. Um, so th- those were mine. You asked at the start of this what decades dominated my list, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm looking at it now, and it, it was the two thousands. By far, because mm. I had three movies from 2004, as I understand it, on my list. Three movies from 2004. 
on my list. And then in addition to that, I had a movie from uh, 2001. So yeah, uh, I only had, I had three movies from the 80s. So that came in second. How about you? Uh, well, I can't recall now what the dates were because I haven't written them next to it. But I think I had at least two from the 50s and a lot from the 2000s. 2000s also, okay. And like one from the 80s. Right. So, But but you're saying mostly the 2000s for you. Mostly, and yeah. And yet, Amelie, I didn't even hear you name check it. You know, I just felt like it was more of a her discovery. Okay. Like I know she she really liked someone, right. and she tries to play matchmaker for right. another couple. Right. Yeah, but I kind of gave that one the skip, I guess. All right. Well, what love stories would you not give a skip to? What are your favorites? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. All right, Shanna. That'll about do it for this episode this titanic sized love story episode that's a bit long (laughs) where can people find you online you can find me at instagram shanna underscore paxton underscore photography and on flick chart spellbinding a make sure you go to the gibsonreview.com to check out my latest entry in the disney through the years feature you will find that on the front page or under reviews and features tab follow along on social media on facebook.com slash the gibson review or instagram the gibson 99 and participate in any bracket polls or interact with any other posts on there and you can find me on Flickchart, The Gifts, and 99. Next time on The Movie Lovers, we're going to keep this uh, train rolling. We're not going to review a new release next time. We're going to review an 80-year-old release. We're, <laughs> I know, we're kicking it fashionably here on The Movie Lovers, aren't we? So the... Goal is for me to finish finally the project of the Disney through the years by the time we record the next episode. Remember, that was something that started in January of last year and was intended to end in the fall of last year. Obviously got prolonged, so I'm I'm kicking my ass, knocking these things out. So um, in celebration of that, we will be reviewing... Bambi, which is experiencing its 80th anniversary this year, 1942 film, and we will be counting down our favorite Disney animated movies. It'll be very interesting to see how different our lists become. We'll be drawing from 60 films, boiling it down to 12 apiece. You can look for that episode on Tuesday, February 15th, right after Valentine's Day. Hopefully you enjoyed this special love story episode of The Movie Lovers. Feel free to look back and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcatcher here Until next time, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye. That's a really good pick, hon. My number eight is a Criterion film. I always like to shite...
You like to shite the Criterion. It's <laughs> terrible. Looking in two or three different places at once. That's not helpful.